Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. If there is one virtue about which America in particular and the world seems to remain in almost terminal confusion, it's the virtue of honesty. Hello, I'm Mark Rutland. Welcome to The Leader's Notebook. I'm so glad you've joined me today as I continue this series of teachings based on my book, Character Matters. I, I want you to have this book as well as listening to the series. If you, if you haven't uh, heard the others in the series, they're archived. I want you to go back. I hope you'll listen to every one of them. But I also want you to have this uh, beautiful hardback copy. At the end of this podcast, someone is going to tell you how you can have this book, Character Matters, simply by making an investment in our girls' homes. When you contribute to the House of Grace and receive this book in the mail, you will know and have the satisfaction of knowing that you are helping us save little girls for big destinies. I'll be teaching today on honesty. Honesty is the virtue that concerns character and truth. When it comes to, to truth, the issue is most people don't want to speak it. And the second is many people don't want to hear it. When a German battleship that was left over from World War I was sunk by bombs dropped from an American airplane, the career of General Billy Mitchell sank with it. The top brass in that post-World War I American army saw airplanes as high-tech gadgets whose expense was prohibitive and whose only purpose was battlefield reconnaissance. Mitchell was the commandant of the Army Air Corps in World War I, and he saw the future and dared to tell the truth. The next war, he said, would depend on air power. His counsel was rejected. Mitchell was denounced as a crackpot, he arranged for this public exhibition of that power. General Pershing and all the other World War I generals said it was impossible to sink a battleship from the air. So they brought this captured German battleship out and Mitchell from an airplane sank it in 20 minutes. Mitchell's loyalty, prophetic insight, Genuine patriotism and zeal for the truth earned him a court-martial, convicted of insubordination and branded a nutcase, he was drummed out of the army that he loved. Billy Mitchell never backed down. He simply told the army the truth. He told the nation the truth. Problem was, the brass in the army didn't want to hear it. Much of the nation and some in Congress listened, but the generals hated him and commanded him to be silent. He refused and continued lecturing and writing. In 1923, he's reduced in rank. In 1925, despite a public outcry on his behalf, he was court-martialed and suspended without pay. The court-martial of General Billy Mitchell was an attempt to silence the truth. The truth was that the power of an air assault could sink ships. It was just that simple. But the American army brass did not want to hear it. If they had listened, 
It might have saved American lives and, in fact, altered the course of modern history. His offense was telling the truth, telling it with stunning accuracy. His analysis was that Pearl Harbor was virtually defenseless to an air attack from Japan. Japan was the source of the attack. Billy Mitchell prophesied it. He said, Pearl Harbor will be attacked by the Japanese from the air. He was labeled as a harebrained, political insensitive. His prediction that the Japanese would someday land paratroopers in Alaska was mocked and rejected as an attempt to gain support from an American paratroop corps that he advocated. Because leadership rigidly and selfishly entrenched in old paradigms rejected the truth. Mitchell paid a heavy price for his honesty. Though a hero to some, he was a renegade to others, a rebel whose name was a joke in the highest echelons of the American military. In 1936, he wrote this, All of the people who sat on my court-martial will be leading the forces defending our country in the Second World War. He prophesied the Second World War and that those generals who judged him would be leading troops. He went on to say, I hope someday they will be honest enough to admit they were wrong. He further wrote, World War II will commence within five years. He died that same year with an estate worth a grand total of $5,000. He died rejected, despised, and in relative poverty. He lost everything because he told the truth. Mitchell did not live to see it. But the Japanese did bomb Pearl Harbor. They did, in fact, land paratroopers in Alaska, which many people do not know. World War II did commence within five years of his prediction. And furthermore, the officers on his court-martial, including Douglas MacArthur, led the American forces in World War II. In 1946, the year after World War II ended, the Army and the nation formally apologized to a man committed to telling the truth regardless of the cost. General Billy Mitchell was posthumously awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. But while he lived, the truth was rejected, and he paid the price. In the early 1970s, I ministered occasionally in the federal penitentiary in Atlanta, I have no idea whether I helped anyone on those visits, but I know they were a constant source of education to me. One man I met there was named Eugene. He had embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars from a corporation that sold infant products, yet he complained bitterly that a country music artist had stolen a song he composed. Eugene made a clear distinction between straightforward embezzlement and, quote, a low-life thief who'd steal another man's song. His protestations were not of innocence, but of honesty. Gene never claimed to be innocent. His bizarre reasoning was that he was honest about being dishonest. I'm a thief, Eugene would say, but at least I'm honest about it. The really sobering thought, of course, is to consider that country music singer, he came and sang to entertain the prisoners. Eugene handed him his song, and the country music artist simply stole it. How did he justify that theft to himself? I believe this is what he must have said. I'm no thief. I really have no idea 
where the original idea from that song came from. How could I ever find the prisoner that handed me those notes? At least, he would say to himself, I never embezzled anything. Honesty is the virtue of wealth and words. Honesty in communication is telling the truth. What does the scripture say? It's clear, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honesty in possessions is right action with regard to things. Thou shalt not steal. That is simple enough. The problem is that we are now facing a generation that morally does not know its left hand from its right. Hardly anyone argues philosophically in favor of theft. Some do, actually, say that people from the street should be able to dash into a store and loot it and do so with impunity. But they are few and far between. Even the thief objects when another thief steals his song. The problem, however, is to see honesty's subtle application in our own lives. Many postmodern Americans see theft as armed robbery. Anything short of that, they reason, is actually something else. Casual theft is a major financial and moral problem for America. The teenager who shoplifts, the thrill theft, the unpaid debt, these are the everyday thefts of American life. If an individual unnecessarily and deliberately files bankruptcy for the express purpose of avoiding the payment of a debt, he's a thief. He has stolen money. It is a dishonest ploy to delay paying a debt until the creditor in frustration simply writes it off. If a housewife arrives at her car and realizes there is one article in her shopping bag that was not actually rung up and she does not return to pay for it, she's a thief. Nobody likes to say it that way, but that's the truth. Faceless theft has become a justifiable crime in many people's minds. No one excuses robbing an old lady of her social security check at gunpoint, but to steal from an institution has become virtually heroic. It is different to steal from a company or a corporation, many people think. I remember many years ago in Warren Beatty's movie about Clyde Barrow, there's a fascinating bank robbery scene in which a customer stands at the counter with his hands up as Bonnie and Clyde rob the bank. Clyde indicates a stack of loose cash lying on the counter. Turning the gun on the man, he says, whose money is on the counter? The man says, it's my money. I haven't made any deposit yet. Clyde responds, pick it up and put it in your pocket. I don't rob individuals. I only rob banks. His was a specious logic. Yet tragically, Clyde Barrow may have spoken for untold thousands of Americans who find it perfectly acceptable to defraud an insurance company. After all, we say to ourselves, insurance is a racket itself. Faceless theft starts with the wrong question. The question is not who or what owns a thing. The greater question is who does not own it. Respect for private ownership transmends my ability to identify the owner. The fact that it is not mine is the bottom line. It is irrelevant whether or not I know the rightful owner. Prevailing wisdom, quote unquote, claims that what I do not know is crucial to honesty. If I do not know whose it is, it may as well be mine. We must rearrange our thinking. Honesty must be based on what I do know. 
I may not know whose it is, but I certainly know whose it's not. Knowing it's not mine is the true ground of honesty. The point is not really that I have no right to what is yours. The point is, I have no right to that which is not mine. Honest financial advancement is an honorable goal. The selling of worthy goods and services for a fair price is pleasing in God's sight. There is nothing wrong with making a profit and gaining wealth. God wants His people to prosper. However, selling goods for more than their worth, even though the traffic will bear it, is dishonest. Willfully hiding pertinent information from another in order to get the better of him in business is not shrewd business. It's thievery. There is a line between shrewd business and dishonesty, but the line is not as narrow as we like to believe. We would do better to bend over backward for honesty in business. It's better to miss out on a deal than to make the deal by the slightest deception. It is better to make a minor profit with honesty than a major one without it. Now let's talk about honesty in communication. Honesty is correct relationship with the highest level of truth. There's a fact that may not be true, and then there's true truth. God himself is ultimate reality, so truth is sacred because departure from truth is a departure from God. The issue of truth is crucial to what we believe to be true about God and life. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Those who operate in right relationship to an ultimate truth live in right relationship to who God is. They reflect the character of their father. Those who deal in deception reveal who their true father is. Satan is the father of and the center of all deception in the earth. Take, for example, the courtroom drama. Person is on the stand being interviewed by the prosecutor. Did you run that pedestrian down with your car when you ran the red light? No. Remember, you're under oath, the prosecutor says. I did not run that person down with my car when I ran the red light. All right, the prosecutor says. Now I'm going to show you a video that was taken from an overhead camera. Is that you in that truck? Yes, it is. Did you run that pedestrian down? Yes. But you just testified you didn't. Aha! The witness says, no, I didn't. You asked me if I ran him down in my car. And that's not a car. It's a truck. There may be a thing that is true at some level, but it's not true truth. Maturity understands the delicate balance between inaccuracy or even a jest and a lie. On the one hand, the issue is guile and motive. Problem on the other hand is cold-blooded literalism. I was visiting in the parsonage of a fellow pastor one time. He had a cute little four-year-old boy. At one point, I tweaked the lad's nose, you know, pushing my thumb between my fingers. You've done the same thing. I said, I've got your nose. The little boy pleaded, kind of joking, no, give me back my nose, give me back my nose. A minute later, I'd grab it again, got your nose. After a few minutes, his father, the preacher, said to me in front of the child, I thank you not to do that again. I make it a practice not to lie to my children, and you're not helping me teach that. I had, in fact, told the child an untruth. I did not get the boy's nose. 
I state that now in print. I would have liked to have tweaked his father's nose, but I didn't. That kind of smug literalism draws a tiny little circle of truth and rejects all the joy and fantasy of creative humor. There's just funny stories. My wife and I, for example, we never indulged in the Santa Claus myth with our children. We told our children from the beginning that Santa is strictly a cultural legend. There is, of course, no such thing as Santa Claus. But many fine parents do teach their children the Santa Claus myth. I, we were straightforward with our children. I felt this determination served our goals best. What I'm not, what I was not attempting to do was heap condemnation on parents who chose otherwise. Our own reasons were twofold. One was we felt that it was too closely related to the issue of theology. I did not want to have to explain to wide-eyed eight-year-olds later, yes, Daddy told you there was a Santa Claus, and he's not real, but Jesus is real. The second reason was more self-serving. I did not want to encourage the Santa Claus myth because I reasoned, why should I shell out all that money every year and let some anonymous fat guy in a red suit get all the credit? So literalism will make our lives joyless and uncreative. Cordell Hull was the Secretary of State under Franklin Roosevelt. He was a notorious literalist. Riding a train across the Midwest, the Secretary and some others observed a flock of sheep in a field. Someone said, I see all those sheep have already been sheared. Cordell Hull protested. He said, no, I don't think we can safely say that. All we can say for sure is that the sheep that we can see have been sheared on the side facing the train. Oh, my lands. Having admitted that such literal-minded priggishness is indeed galling, it is equally certain that it is not the greater issue. There are two kinds of dishonest communication. The first is simulation. The second is dissimulation. Simulation is trying to be or appear to be what we are not. Dissimulation is the opposite. It is to seem to be what we are not. The story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 is evidence of God's seriousness about religious simulation. They were struck dead, not for withholding money. Don't get the story wrong. They died for claiming more generosity, more gracious faith, more piety, more generosity than they actually had. The sobering story of Ananias and Sapphira is about honesty in matters spiritual. It was shocking and repulsive to read about the bogus evangelist who claimed to operate in the word of knowledge while actually receiving radio transmissions from a hidden sound booth. We all read it. What a reproach that was on Christianity. What a scandal. The man will certainly answer to God, but the American church is not blameless. The American church has actually created an atmosphere that is conducive to just that kind of simulation. We send ministries mixed signals. We financially support ministries that are expert in simulation and then hate them when they're exposed. We embrace the hyper-spiritual, the flamboyant image makers, and their puppet preachers. We demand that they not tell us the truth. But we despise their public nakedness when it's exposed. Politics, religion, business, we just don't want to hear the truth and we will suffer for it in this country.
The second kind of communication dishonesty is dissimulation. Dissimulation is not appearing to be something we aren't. It's appearing not to be something we are. This is perhaps the more common crisis of faith in the average Western believer. We, we want to deny being something we are. The prime example in Scripture is Simon Peter. In the courtyard of Caiaphas, as Jesus was on trial, people began to identify him. Aren't you a friend of Jesus? Weren't you with him? Aren't you a Galilean? Three times he denied. I tell you, I don't know Jesus. I don't know the man. No matter how close to the fire he stood, Peter could not seem to get warm. He was cold and he was shivering because of his dishonesty and his denial. He was a Christian and he denied it. Most Christians will never be tempted to deny Christ before a firing squad. Few of us, relatively speaking, will be tortured to denounce the name of Jesus. Far more often, it is by silence, by head nod or knowing wink, that the modern believer denies his allegiance to Christ. I do not know him, is the subtle dissimulation of the collaborator. The hypocrite pretends to be what he's not. The compromised, lacking the courage of their convictions, pretend not to be what they are. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, the Bible says. That may very well mean saying yes to Jesus when it's costly and no to the world when it is unpopular. The temptation will seldom be to outright denial, but rather to subtle compromise. Soft public dissimulation is the velvet-lined coffin of a bold and dynamic faith. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we want to follow Jesus in the way, and we want to live the life of Jesus, we must cherish, live, and speak the truth. I'm so glad you joined me today for this episode of The Leader's Notebook. I've been teaching this series on character matters. It's based on my book of some years ago, and I'm so grateful to God for the popularity that book enjoyed. We sold thousands of copies. Every penny of it and every penny of every book I've ever written has all gone to support our girls' homes, House of Grace, in Thailand and in West Africa. Stay tuned now, and someone is going to tell you how you can get a copy of Character Matters. I want to send it to you, have my office send it to you tomorrow morning just for making a contribution to our girls' homes. Help us save little girls for big destinies. Until we meet again, I'm Mark Rutland, and this has been The Leader's Notebook. Wow, another great episode of The Leader's Notebook. Hello, I'm Ronnie Brannon, the Chief of Staff at Global Servants. And as Dr. Rutland said, we want to send you your copy of his book, Character Matters. You can receive your copy by contributing any amount to Global Servants through our Secure Give app on our website. Go to globalservants.org, click the Donate button, and then click Give Online and then leave your contribution under the podcast gift tab. Next, please click add a message and include your name, email address, and the mailing address where you would like your book delivered. As soon as your donation is processed, we'll send you an email confirming the delivery address, and we'll get your book in the mail to you by the next business day. Again, thank you for subscribing to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland and helping make a difference for those around the world. 
in helping save little girls for big destinies. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.